All right, I've got nine o'clock, so I'm going to get started because you know me, I'm going to run out of time probably anyways. So we'll go ahead and get started this morning. Any announcements or prayer requests this morning that y'all have on your minds? Okay. Uh, one announcement I, I will go ahead and make is that I uh, received an email back from uh, Billy this morning, and uh, the campaign team did arrive safely in the Bahamas, and so they are there. I'll try to send an email out this week just to kind of remind you of all those that are on the team and out there during the mission uh, trip this week. Primarily, obviously, you know, it's, it's a lot of the college kids on their spring break, and uh, but uh, hopefully we're going to hear some good news and some good things that they're doing there. I'm glad they arrived safely, and yesterday will be their first day full-time there, so that's a good thing. Y'all keep them in your prayers. Anybody else? Right, let's go ahead and start off class this morning with a word of prayer. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, our Almighty God, we are so thankful for the ability we have to be able to come before your presence today, to be able to open up your word, study from it, and challenge ourselves to be better Christians. God, we are thankful for your word that you've inspired to give us all the directives we need to know what we are fighting, why we are fighting, and who we are fighting. And God, we are thankful for uh, this guidebook that we have. May we be able to study from it in this class as well as every day in our life to be able to more thoroughly be equipped to fight on your side in this battle. God, we are thankful for the Lord's church, which you, in your great wisdom, have seen fit to organize and to leave behind for us while we are here on this earth, and that you have been able to equip us with those like-mindedness to be able to fight alongside of each other, to encourage one another, and to uplift us when we get in those times and those ruts in our lives. We are thankful for the body of believers here, especially at Dalreda. Thankful for our leaders, the elders and the Bible class teachers and deacons and, and all the other members of this congregation and what they mean to us. We ask you to continue to bless us here as we continue to strive to follow your word. Please especially keep upon the, the elders here. Uh, immense blessings for all that they do and the sacrifices that they make as they lead the flock of God here in Dalreda. We are so thankful for them. We ask you to give them uh, continual guidance so they'll be able to oversee here and lead us in the way that you want us to be led. God, we are thankful for Jesus. And we're thankful for his sacrifice on the cross. And we know without his sacrifice that we would not have a chance for eternal life. We would have really no meaning and no reason to fight against Satan because we would have no hope. and We are thankful for his sacrifice on the cross. Be with us as we live our lives each day. May we look for opportunities to lead others to you, especially this week. Be with the mission team that's in the Bahamas and be with the Hannah family there as they work alongside and with each other and help them to be able to bring souls to you, be able to teach your word so they know who Jesus is and they know exactly what Jesus did for us. And it's through Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We uh, kicked off the study, this is two weeks ago now, with regard to our spiritual warfare, which we are all embroiled in some way, form, or fashion. And so we uh, introduced the series, uh, wanted to uh, now dive into some specific thoughts 
specific as, uh, aspects of this warfare, these battles that we are a part of in our lives. Uh, and I really want to start at the top as you think about our commander-in-chief. And uh, if you think back and, and really the overall kind of how what we think about commander-in-chief, usually that term is associated with the president of the United States to us as Americans. In fact, if you look to our Constitution, Article 2 of the United States Constitution creates the executive office of the president. As you go on and read and think about uh, what the, the words are spelled out there in the Constitution, they actually provide and establish that the president is the commander-in-chief of the Army and the Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. And this grant of power has been construed over the years, of course, to really say that the president, although not enlisted, although not usually coming from, if you look historically, from those who are part of our armed forces, is the one who is in charge of the armed forces. And so in the infinite knowledge, I guess, or wisdom, so to speak, of our forefathers, they thought it was best to imbue the president, the leader of our country, with the ultimate oversight of the armed forces. It's very interesting, of course, if you look at how that has affected throughout the years the, the rule of law and the establishment and the, the execution and wars and battles. Of course, ultimately, the president has the, the final say-so on anything. Now, he, of course, delegates that authority to those who are generals, those who serve underneath him. We have the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all those that really provide uh, advice and wisdom to him on how he should um, make those choices. But our president ultimately has the, the final say-so. Historically, there's a story that's told about during the, the War of 1812. And at that point in time, of course, was President James Madison was president. And uh, he showed there exactly how a president can lead as a commander-in-chief. Interestingly enough, there's really only two different times when a president has ever taken the battle, that at least I could find. And Scott, you're here. You may be able to correct me if I'm wrong. But there's only two uh, times when a president has actually taken lead, very personal lead, of the battle uh, as the president, as the commander-in-chief. And James Madison showed us that during the, the War of 1812, uh, where upon August the 24th, about 1814, American troops were there under siege and under enemy fire when the American foes were routed by British troops in Bladensburg, Virginia. Bladensburg, Maryland, I'm sorry. Bladensburg, Maryland. And the war, the Battle of Bladensburg ultimately was a very losing battle. Uh, unfortunately, that's also what opened up the gateway for we know in the War of 1812 what was burned down, the White House. And so the war in Bladensburg, West Virginia opened up in that area the ability for the British troops to storm and to come in and infiltrate the Washington, D.C. area and ultimately burn down the White House. Well, in that battle at Bladensburg, as the, uh, the general there came under fire and and there was frustration that grew there. Um, James Madison actually was on, came upon the scene. And he personally assumed command of the only remaining American force there, which was a naval battery commanded by Commodore Joshua Barney. Madison stood as the commander-in-chief. A man who, if you look, really didn't have a lot of background in military warfare. I would say he's probably not the, the best strategist. But he said, I will not stand and let my city burn. And he tried to stop it. Uh, unfortunately, he was not successful. Their, his efforts were unsuccessful, as well as the troops there of the, the young uh, American uh, world. And the British ultimately burned Washington 
over the next two days. President Madison, as the commander-in-chief, made the decision, and he led his army in the fight. Although his efforts failed, his actions as the commander-in-chief at that point in time were admirable, and I would say were somewhat inspirational. Could you imagine how this country would feel if the president led the people to war? Brother Verrill. He did. That's right. The uh, Washington, George Washington, which is the other one, by the way, who led the, against the Risk, Whiskey Rebellion as president. Uh, he actually did not, my understanding, from what I've read at least, that he did not necessarily get active. He was president at that point. He led them. He was on the scene, did not actually lead there on the charge at that point in time, but led the troops there as general. Of course, he was an astounding general. We know General George Washington before we knew President George Washington. Uh, but th that mindset of being commander-in-chief uh, invokes somewhat of, I, I believe, at least it should invoke in us, a mindset of submission to authority. Well, we agreed with them on policies, procedures, even today we can go back and forth on whether we agree with our own president on what things that he has done in this world. The idea that he has been dubbed, he has been given the authority as commander-in-chief should invoke a certain amount of respect, if not for anything else, just for the office and, and what position and authority that is espoused by being the commander-in-chief of the United States. Uh, Commander-in-chiefs make the ultimate decision. And so in our spiritual war, war, and that's what I'd like to transition to as we think about this, how do we perceive our commander-in-chief? Who is he? And of course, we could spend... <laughs> Quarters upon quarters talking about God, in fact. I mean, you could do a whole quarter study on the names of God themselves uh, because there are so many different terms and, and illustrations used to describe God. What I hope to do today is we look, of course, at our commander-in-chief, who is God, in our spiritual war. Hopefully we'll be able to look at exactly uh, what he is and, and maybe how he operates, what he provides to us as his troops as we think about the impact on our spiritual lives from his spiritual direction. You see, you know, God is the one who ultimately makes the decisions in this battle. He's the one who ultimately, in the end, will have the final verdict and the final say with regard to victory. As we make our decisions and our choices as his soldiers, that will pit us either with him or against him. And there's really no in-between, to be quite honest. God even says that in the New Testament, right? You're either with me or you're against me. And so you've got to pick those sides and decide exactly where you're going because it's God who should be deriving our plan of attack. It's God who should be the one presenting the battle plan that we are executing as his soldiers. It's God who should be directing us in the ways that we are to fight. If we are truly Christian soldiers marching on to war behind God, our ultimate leader and our commander-in-chief, it's going to be God making those calls in our lives. Now, of course, that should start the inner reflection that we have at that juncture as we just think of that simple fact that God should be the one directing our battles in our lives. The question should be, am I letting God? Am I following God? Am I doing those things which God wants us to do? Because we know if we follow after God and we follow after our commander and our warfare, uh, it's going to be profitable because we know in the end, read the book of Revelation if you want a good, a good rendition of what's going to happen in the end. The ultimate conquest, the ultimate 
end of this war, this spiritual war that we fight on a daily basis, is going to be victory for God. Now, of course, that should always, and I believe that's one of the greatest stories and the greatest meanings behind studying the book of Revelation, is emphasizing the fact that victory is obtained only by being part of God's army. Not our own, and definitely not part of Satan's. And so as you read and you think about the, the battle plan and you see all there is, it's important for us to see that by following our commander-in-chief, if we follow our commander-in-chief, we will be victorious. Just think about this. If, if, we follow, if we're going to follow after a commander, I believe it's important for us to know a little bit about him. Now, if you look at the chain of command and, and those who enlist in the military, they just automatically come up under a, the idea of authority, right? They, just, they really shouldn't question whatsoever what they're doing. In fact, that's kind of what they're trained. Uh, when you enlist, you know, and you go in there as a, I guess, what do you go in there as a private now? I don't even know what you go into now. But uh, whatever degree, whatever rank you go into the army as an enlisted individual, you know, you don't question your command structure at all. You know, that's not a job. In fact, you, it's, it's considered uh, an, an offense that you can be prosecuted for and kicked out of the army or the, the Navy or the Marines or whatever branch you're in, the Air Force, if, if you somewhat try to refute your commander. And again, in this situation, I'm not saying we need to refute or necessarily question God's authority, but I think it's important for us to understand and maybe know a little bit about them. Uh, for us as Christians to kind of have that as the foundation of our respect and following after his authority of all the things that he does. I think because God's a spiritual being, it's very likely that we may never totally and completely comprehend his nature. And as we go through some of these points, it's going to be pretty obvious that, that sometimes it seems as though things contradict themselves. And I can't get into every one of those contradictions today. We just can't do it uh, when we think about it. But God cannot be completely understood, I believe, in our minds because we have finite minds. Our mind is. Well, our spiritual mind has got to take over. And our spiritual mind is a mind of faith. That's why God focuses in the New Testament and conveying to us through inspiration that we must live by faith and not by sight. That's why the emphasis in Hebrews chapter 11 of all those people there who are men and women of faith, they walked by faith and not by sight. That's why God says if we don't have faith, then we're in trouble in our lives because that's the spiritual part of our mind taking over. Do you, does that make sense? It, it's believing and understanding in a way that really is incomprehensible to us in our finite and our physical mindset because it doesn't always make sense. And so as we go through the study and as you ever think about the, the nature of God, it may not ever completely make sense to us because as humans, as created beings, it's hard for us to understand an everlasting and eternal being because we aren't that way. Yeah, our, 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 our souls, our spirits will endure in the end, but you know, we had a beginning. We had a beginning. And it's hard for us to understand in our minds, God did not have a beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He, he has always existed. It's not just that he is eternal, as though he has no end, but he is everlasting, as though he had no beginning. And so it's very hard for us in our infinite, in our finite minds to understand the infinite mind of God. But I believe knowing God, and knowing about him is helpful because when we know our commander, we want to fight even harder under his guidance and his direction. We really buy into the system, so to speak. 
we understand that it's not just that He's commanding us, that He's got this authority that He places over us, but we see His motivation and we see His love and we see His understanding and all those things not just make us want to obey, but it makes us want to lovingly obey because of who God is and what He does for us. Brother Verl. Yeah, you look at the Psalms and the Job, actually, what you're looking at there is, is the idea of, of God responding to questions and trying to understand or make us understand, make Job understand or make those who are listening to that understand that my ways are so high, and not just high as in elevation, they're high as in a different plane. They are high as in a different comprehension. They are something that is difficult to embrace and to understand. But I think by looking at God's Word, what He has revealed to us. And again, if God loves us so much that He wants us to be saved, and if God loves us so much that He wants us to see that there is some pattern, that there is some guide for us, God's going to reveal that to us. That's why one reason we can have assurance in God's Word, okay? And again, that's a Christian evidence type of an argument and a point about the authority and the inspiration of God. But why else would God give us His Word? It's because He loves us and He wants us to understand what that game plan is. He wants us to understand what that battle plan is when we're out there in the midst of this spiritual warfare. As best as we can, as best as our lowly, finite minds can understand, he wants us to try and grasp a hold what our duties and our obligations are. And so that's why we see here certain things revealed to us. And I believe by looking at the Bible and these characteristics of God, they allow us to appreciate the spiritual commander and desire to do everything we can in our physical bodies to stand firm in the spiritual battle. It's just like Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians where he talks about standing firm, being immovable, always abounding. And the only way we can do that is to have a thorough understanding about what God wants us to do. Otherwise, we waver. Otherwise, we quake. Otherwise, we are scared. We shake in the midst of confrontation. And so God wants His army. He wants his soldiers to be equipped so that we can stand in battle wherever we are. And one of the ways that he does that is he reveals to us who he is. Because in reality, it all begins at the top. And if we understand the top, it's going to be a whole lot better and easier for us to understand how we fit in working underneath him and his authority. Real quickly, let's go over a couple things. Who is our commander-in-chief? That's the question that we have. Hopefully y'all can read this better this week. Yeah, I changed it to black. I didn't like the white. It was, I had several people, including my wife, say that you can't read that. So when your wife says that, you listen right now. Um, so change it to black. Brian, are we good back there this week? All right, good. God is all spiritual. And I want to start there because, again, it is something that's difficult for us to comprehend. It's difficult for us in our minds to totally embrace and to totally understand because our minds are physical. We are finite. We, we rely on physical things. Those things that we can see, hear, touch, feel, even smell. We rely on those things. Trust me, as an attorney trying to prosecute a case, I know how much people rely on those things that you can see, that you can touch, that you can feel, that really prove something. And the problem is with God, God himself is spiritual. He is spiritual. You cannot touch God. 
You cannot feel God. You cannot smell God. You cannot taste God if you would want to try to taste God. He is a spiritual being, and He is a being which we have a hard time grasping because as we go on through there, there's so many different aspects of God talking about that He's everywhere, but He's also here, that He knows everything, whether it's here or halfway around the globe. He, he, he's got this, this comprehension that we cannot fathom in our finite minds, but God is spiritual. That's why God, it says in, first, in John chapter 4, verse 24, that, that He commands us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because that's what God is. He's spiritual. We must elevate our worship. We must elevate our service. We must elevate our, our battles to that spiritual plane because that's what God is. If we are seeking and striving and wanting to be like God, then we are going to do what God is. We're going to be where He is. We're going to seek to strive to, to meet Him on those levels and not our level. So often we ask God to come to our level because we're physical. We think God's going to come and, and meet us on our physical level instead of us elevating our mindset and our goals and our principles, those, those things that we want to a spiritual level. We've got to realize God's spiritual nature commands that we realize He is different and something far better than what we are in the physical realm. God is spiritual. Luke chapter 24, verse 39, real quickly. As you think about who God is and, and really what He embodies in the spiritual sense, of course, you see here at the end of, uh, of Jesus' time here on this earth, and then He's there uh, um, making His appearances to individuals. In verse 39, it says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, of course, Jesus was God in bodily form, right? Go back, John chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, the one, even Emmanuel, the name that he has pronounced to, to be named was uh, uh, the meaning being God with us. And so God with us was Jesus in bodily form. He had flesh. He had blood. But God doesn't because God is spirit. Spirit does not have flesh and bones. And so as you think about our God, our Father, our Commander-in-Chief, God is spiritual. He is different than us in a far better, exceedingly better way than what we are in our physical form. We have flaws. And our flaws come about really mainly because we have a physical body. We have physical characteristics. We have physical temptations. We have those things which come upon us that God does not do. God does not deal with. Part of that, you could even say God was not confronted with because he didn't have a body. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, came in bodily form, was tempted in all ways that we are. I think there's a distinctive difference there. Why it was so important to send his son to this earth is because God in heaven as a spiritual being did not experience the temptations that we have on this earth because he's spiritual. He sent his son in fleshly form who underwent every temptation, experienced every scenario that we would have so that God would understand what that was. That God could sympathize and empathize with humanity for what we have done and how we have made the choices in our lives. God has allowed His Son and sent His Son for us. But part of the sending of the Son was to transform Him in form, right? That's what Philippians chapter 2 talks about. That Jesus left His form. 
the form that was equivalent, that was the same nature of God, he left and changed form to that which was physical on this earth. And that changed Jesus. But it made him physical versus just being spiritual. Brother Melvin. Good, good point. And then again, if I, I don't want to infer in any way, form, or fashion the fact that God understands anything more because God, we're going to get to in a second, He's all-knowing. He, he knows it all. Uh, so that would say that He really didn't learn anything necessarily by sending His Son. But I think you're, it's a, an excellent point there. The idea that He has taken away those excuses. He's taken away those reasons that people may try to throw in the face of God because He did send His Son. I think it's a great way to, to, to put that. And it kind of, and we talked about uh, my view of God has always been a judge. That's just the mindset of me being a lawyer. You know, I always think of God being the judge. We talked about this Wednesday night with the college students, kind of talking about our different views of God. And one of, that's one of the things that you think about is God judging us. But in fact, you're right. John five talks about the fact that Jesus is ultimately the one who's the, the judge. That God has placed Him to be the judge over us, and kind of washed away any type of a reason to look up and say, "Well, you can't judge me. You hadn't been there." And again, it's not that God doesn't understand it, but it's that he understands humanity, is my opinion. Uh, if you look at it, God understood what defenses and what things that, that man may look at and see. And when they look up and see the Son of God, who did come in flesh, who, who faced temptations, who faced the, the drags and the drudgery of being in human form, they don't have a reason to say, hey, you can't judge me. Because, in fact, that is the, the ultimate judgment that someone who lived it, who breathed it, who went through it all perfectly can then look down upon those of us who decide we're not going to conform our lives to God. And they can say, you did not do what we asked. You did not do what God demands. And so they can condemn and sentence them because of that. But I, great point, great point. Um, God is all spiritual, God, and this is some other aspects of God, and I can't spend all class or will spend way too much time on that, which I wasn't really expecting to. That's the way it goes. Uh, God is all powerful. God is all powerful. There is nothing that God cannot do. You know, the kids saying, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And, and that's exactly what God is. There's nothing that is impossible with respect to God. He is. There's nothing too difficult for him. He has allowed wombs to be open. He's allowed 
people to see. He has allowed uh, the blind, I mean, the, the lame to walk. Uh, all those things come from the power of God. God, in the very beginning, as you look at that Genesis beginning of all of time and of all of, of what we know as the world today, God showed His ultimate power. Nothing's too difficult for Him. It's, it's been ever-present in the physical world. He's, as I said, the Creator. He's the Savior. John chapter 1, verses 14 and John 3, 16. God is the Savior of mankind. He is all-powerful and powerful enough to wipe away the sins of man. God can do that. God is not wanting to uh, man to think that they can sustain themselves. And in fact, God is the one who is the ultimate sustainer. Look with me real quickly. Psalm chapter 55. Psalm 55, verse 22. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. It echoes 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, of course, where it says, Cast all your cares upon Him for He, he careth for you. God wants us to rely upon Him and Him alone. Of course, we all know uh, that, that He desires that we also trust Him, that we lean upon Him for His strength, for His understanding. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, talks about our reliance upon God and the fact that He wants us to lean upon Him. Proverbs 5, 3, verse 5, Of course, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 6, In all your ways, Acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Another good little song you hear our kids sing and kids sing. The fact that God wants us to trust Him and Him alone. As much as we love our spouse, we trust God more. As much as we may love our best friends in this world, we trust God more. As much as we may love our children or maybe our parents or any other family or, or close relationships that we have in our lives, God demands that we trust Him the most. We don't lean on our own understanding. We don't lean on those things which we think. And the reason is because God is all-powerful. He, he, he allows us to be comforted by Him if we lean on Him for those times. It's God's power that has the ability to lead us ultimately through the spiritual war. Real quickly, and I know we don't have a lot of time to dig into the story in Judges chapter 6, but I love this example about what God is and how powerful God is and the point that God wants to make to His people that He does have the power. And again, God is a jealous God, and I think He has a right to be a jealous God. He expects us to rely upon Him and Him alone. Okay, he does not want us to have divided mentality of who we are faithful to. And rightly so, because he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the savior, ultimately. And so you see in, in the Judges chapter 6, a wonderful example in the Old Testament of the point of emphasis that God has for us, even today, that resounds fully with us today, on how we must rely on him and his power alone. We should not have anything that we have in our own self to make us feel we are exalted or we are powerful or we are able to do things without Him. And of course, we know the story in Judges chapter 6 of the, of the story of here of, of Gideon. And of course, Israel for many years, as, we, as you see throughout the Judges and, 
and on even into the kings, of course, goes back and forth with regard to their loyalty, their dedication, their faithfulness to God. And, and here, of course, Midian in chapter 5 and 6 uh, oppressed the children of Israel for many years because, again, Israel had turned their backs on God. They had done what was evil in his sight. We see in chapter 6 and verse 1. And, and so as you go on and read the story as it unfolds, they call out, of course, for God. God, again, wants to save him, save them. Save their people. He he loves his chosen people. And he said, has always told them he will care for them if they obey him. They call out for him again. And, of course, what does he do? He raises up Gideon. And what we see in the story of Gideon, that he was raised up as a leader when, he, when they cried out for the Lord there in verses 11 through 19. However, the Lord wanted to make a definitive statement in this story that resounds even today in our world today, the fact that the children of Israel... And in relationship, we, as his children, must rely solely upon God and those things which God can provide for us. And so what you see is God started whittling down the men. I love this story. It's a great story for the kids, too, uh, that you usually have taught in, in children's Bible classes. Is the fact that it starts with, what, 32,000 men, I believe, that were willing to fight under um, Gideon's leadership. And at that point in time, God said, you know what, that's just too many. That's uh, too many. He whittled them down to only 300. Remember, uh, he, he, he got them to go drink from the, the water and he whittled down those that did this way or that way. And, and ultimately, God whittled the, the men down to 300 and brought them to battle against Midian. God did not want Israel to trust in their own strength. And if you look there in, in the passage of Scripture in the book of Judges, as this story unfolds, it's made very clear the purpose and the mentality of God as he, he whittled these chosen men down so that they would not uh, be endued with their own self, uh, their selfish pride that they had done or brought about anything. And so as they were whittled down to 300 there in chapter 7 and verse 8, you go on to see exactly why God did these things. As he said in verse 7, I will deliver you with 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hand so that all the people go each man at his home. That's verse 7. And then, of course, the Lord then talks about the, the fact of why he will do it. It's why, verse 2 says this, this is why before he whittled them down. The people who are with you are too many. For Israel will become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now, therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, whoever is afraid, tremble, let them go home. 22,000 people left, 10,000 remained. Again, verse 4, the people are still too many. I will test them for you there. Verse 4, he brought them down. He said, you'll separate them all. He wanted to make a point to the people that they were not going to be boastful. That when they went up against Midian, that they were going to be assured that there was one reason and one reason alone that they won. And that's because God was the commander-in-chief. And so you see, as they went up against Midian, of course, that, that Midian fought, fell to Israel. And this clear point was made that as uh, this great nation of Midian that had risen up, that had uh, taken Israel under the oppression that they had there, that Israel would have no choice at that point in time but to realize that God was the one with the power. God is all-powerful, whichever way you look at it, from creation all the way to salvation God presents the power. He's all-knowing. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, uh, kind of shows us from the very beginning uh, the idea that there are no secrets between God and man. In fact, you can go back further than that. And As Adam and Eve were in the garden, walking around, and, and of course, 
had this relationship with God. And of course, you see the transgression in chapter 3. And then ultimately, God knew what happened. He knew exactly what was going to go on. He knew what Eve had done. He knew what Adam had done. He called them into accountability ultimately. But you see as you go through, not just the punishment of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but you see in other ways in the Old Testament, time and time and time again, that God is all-knowing. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in our steps. He knows what's in our intentions. He knows what we are. And ultimately, He knows whose we are. He knows who His soldiers are. Have you ever thought about that? He knows exactly which side we've chosen that day to be on. God is all-knowing. Whether it's David who is confronted with his sin, Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, or whether it's Jonah who was found when he thought he could run away from God in Jonah chapter 1, God will find us and will know what state that we're in. He's not limited in the knowledge of man because God knows the thoughts and the actions of man's heart. There are no secrets between him. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 talks about the, the idea that he knew what was in the heart there. Second, uh, uh, First Kings chapter two and verse four. I've already mentioned Genesis chapter six and verse five. There before the flood, God knew the hearts of man. He knew exactly what was in their hearts and the fact that their thoughts and their actions were continuously evil. In Genesis chapter six, there was no redeeming quality, and God said, "I'm done." And the only reason God was able to show His majestic power there in destroying the entire earth with water was because he was all-knowing and knowing exactly what was in the hearts of man. God knows. He's able to see our true spirit. He cannot be deceived. And God knows exactly where we stand in this battle. He knows what our thoughts are. He knows what our actions are. And we can't hide from him. God is also all-present. And I think this is hard and hard for us to comprehend in our physical minds many, many times over is the fact that he is everywhere. In contradiction to Satan, and we're going to get to Satan in some of our later lessons, Satan is not everywhere. And I think that's going to be the underscoring principle that I want to hit to you guys about Satan when we get to that lesson, that Satan is not equivalent to God. In fact, every one of these that you talk about here, uh, some of these traits may apply to Satan, such as that he is a spiritual being. He is. Uh, there's no physical being that we have of Satan that we know of. He's in the image sometimes of physical things but he is a spiritual being. But Satan's not all-powerful. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is also not all-present. If you look in different uh, passages of Scripture, you'll see that God is, is specifically said to be everywhere. The fact that he is, is all, all omnipresent is the word we usually use, but that word is technically not used in the Scriptures. But the, the allusion and the inferences are definitely there in the Scriptures. You look in Acts chapter 17, verse 27, I love this passage of Scripture, when you look in the New Testament, Paul's there in the midst of the Areopagus there in Athens, and he's talking to these people who are spiritually minded, who look out, he looks out and he sees this, this God that's set up to an unknown God. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul's able to confront them on this. And in the midst of his confrontation, he says something I think is very pertinent for us, is the fact that God is there. And he says, verse 27, you, know, you get in the whole, I don't want to read the whole thing. Verse 24, God made the world. He's the Lord of the heaven. Uh, he's not served by human hands. Verse 25, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind. Talking about the, the, the genesis of mankind there, the beginning from Adam on into us. Verse 27, that they 
would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Now that's interesting if you think about it. God is there waiting for us to grope and reach after Him. Now again, physically speaking, that's not can't be done. God's not physical, right? We've already laid that foundation. God is not a physical thing, a physical being. He's not a physical person for us to grab a hold of, like we might grab the hand of our husband or wife, or we might grab a hold of the neck or the bottom of our child whenever they're disruptive. I mean, we can't, can't grab a hold of God in the physical sense. What Paul underscores here is that in the spiritual sense, God wants us to seek and to grope and to hang on to Him. His being, His spiritual being, exists. He exists everywhere. He is ever-present and ever-knowing in our lives. He's with us when we wake. He's with us when we sleep. He's with us when we work. He's with us when we play. He's with us when we do good. He's with us at the beginning when we're bad, probably. He knows we're there. God's present. He's there. I'm not sure I'm going to say He's with us when we're doing bad. I'm going to use that phrase. God's there. God is ever-present. And it's a spiritual concept and hard for us to understand, hard for me to understand how He can be here with me, but He can also be all the way around the world with our brethren in India today. It's hard. It's a weird concept for me because I'm a physical man. And in my mind, it's hard for me to think that God is everywhere, but He is. That's what the Scripture is saying. And by faith, I've got to believe those things that God has revealed to us about His own nature. He's all present with us. And Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 10 is a wonderful phrase, I think, there, talking about the ever-presence of God. And there David says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. God is ever-present. And to me, that's comforting as I think about fighting alongside God, right? That commander-in-chief is always on the battlefield with me. His spiritual presence should be there as a comfort and a guide to us. And I think finally I want to emphasize to you that God is all-loving. God is all-loving. There's, a, a, there's not a hateful bone in God's body toward us as beings. Now, toward us. He's hateful towards sin. He hates sin. God will not be in the presence of sin. He hates it. He hates sin. But when it comes to us, He loves us. He loves us. No matter how demanding He is, no matter how powerful He is, no matter how all-knowing He is of the sins that we've committed against Him, God still loves you. And how awesome is that? To have a commander who is there when you combine all these things together, what you see is that because He's all-loving, He's also going to be always forgiving when we're ready to follow back into His lead, when we're part of His camp again. Even though we may have committed treason against Him and walked away and even supported the opposing side, we can come back. And why? The why is because God is all-loving. Oliver. Now, Romans 8 resounds or should resound with us in our minds, right? I love that book of Romans. And you think about the concept that are, are portrayed in Romans to us uh, that go beyond the initial things that we think of. And of course, I threw up there John 4, verse 8, and 1 John 4, verse 8, and, and 1 John verse 5, verse 3. 1 John 4, 8 is great. 
God is love. And if you were to put an equation up on the screen today, it would be God equals love. That's what God is. You want to define love? That's God. It's not feeling. It's not necessarily doing. But it's everything that God is rolled up and together. That's what real love is. And Verl's right. As you think about the idea of the condition that we are in, Romans paints that picture for us of sin and how crazy and terrible sin can be on a body, right? The wages of sin is death. What we deserve for being sinful, what we deserve for leaving God's camp, what we deserve for fighting against God is death. You know? Ultimate. Capital punishment for treason. You want a good proof of capital punishment for treason? There you go. That's got it, right? That's what it is. And it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. Romans 6 talks about that, the fact that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And you go on to see Romans chapter 8, what Brother Verl just mentioned, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Read the first part. God loved us. God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were hateful, while we were bad, while we were making horrible choices in our lives, while we were sinning and committing these very acts that God hates, He still loved us. And He knew, He knew that if we would come back to His camp and fight alongside of Him, He would be waiting there with open arms. That that story of the prodigal son that Jesus told is, is a story that resounds completely with me. Not necessarily now on a father level, it does. You know, when you become a father, it changes your perspective and the thoughts of your child leaving you in the dust like the prodigal son did. You know, it's a whole sobering thought, scary thought, really, if you want to get into it. But it's the idea of the coming home thing that resounds with me more than anything. It shows me what kind of a God that we can serve as our commander in chief. And it's a God who stands there with open arms waiting for us to see the error of our ways and realize we can still be a part of that battle alongside that kind of a great, powerful, spiritual, all-knowing, omnipresent kind of commander-in-chief because God loves us. He loves us. And that's the kind of commander-in-chief that I want to serve. And I hope you do too. We'll pick up here next week. Thank you all for your good attention.